Stroud watching for the end zone. Jump ball. Touchdown, Smith and Jigba. Are you kidding me? Fourth and five, the national championship on the line right here. He's going for the corner. College football playoff field is set with one conference getting two teams in for the first time in the nine-year history of the four-team format. Somebody has to win the Heisman, and Coach Prime is headed to the Pac-12. Plus, this is America's week as Army and Navy take the field in Philadelphia for an exquisite combination of football and patriotism. This is the Saturday Cadence podcast presented by the Silver Bulletin. I'm your host, Blake Biscardi, alongside Dave Wertheim, who's back this week. Dave, let's start with the selection committee's choices in the top four. We saw Georgia, Michigan, TCU, and Ohio State at four. What were your initial thoughts when you saw this on Sunday and now as you've digested it for a couple of days here? I think it's the right call. I think these are the best four teams left. And obviously, you can make an argument for a couple others at that four spot. But I think the committee got it right with Ohio State. I think they'll give Georgia a game. Um, maybe that Michigan loss woke them up a little bit. I think TCU deserved to stay at three, even with their loss to Kansas State. Uh, and then obviously you got the two undefeated teams up top. So it seemed to make a lot of sense to me. Yeah, you're mentioning TCU staying at three and you agreed with that. I think that argument is really interesting because it depends on you as a person. Do you value resume and what they've done and like the four best teams or the four most deserving teams? And then you have that football judgment argument come into play because we heard the commentator say it on Sunday, we can look at it as analysts as well and see, okay, on paper, I believe Ohio State would beat TCU, so I would rank them third. Personally, in my poll, I would think Ohio State should have been third. But again, you can't argue that TCU is three in this format. So if you're looking at the styles of how you'd rank the teams, if you go four best or four most deserving, which one do you think the four team field should be? Four best or four most deserving? I think you got to do a combination of both, honestly. Um, what TC, TCU might not be better than Alabama. They might not beat Alabama. They probably wouldn't beat Alabama. But, you know, what they did this year was pretty incredible. Winning 12 straight to open the year and running the table in the regular season is impressive in its own right in a Power 5 conference. And, you know, I think that deserves a little bit of consideration. And, and if you look at a team like Ohio State, who had two ranked wins, big wins at Penn State, home against Notre Dame, beat the MAC champion Toledo. I know that doesn't move the needle much, but it is something. Um, and I think you got to value that as opposed to Alabama, who didn't really have any huge wins of note and suffered a couple of close losses, albeit on the road. Uh, I think you have to consider a little bit of both when you make these rankings. And I think the committee really did that here, putting in Ohio State at that fourth spot, uh, even though they might not be the fourth most deserving team. Maybe they are. Maybe they're not. You could certainly make an argument for both. Uh, but I think they, they appreciate Ohio State as that fourth best team, fourth most deserving team, however they want to describe it. Um, and I think you got a little use a little bit of your own judgment and a little bit of both. You can't just stick with one or the other. I want to touch on TCU and Alabama exactly in line with your argument here. When you're looking at Alabama, you, Nick Saban came on Fox and ESPN both pleading his case for Alabama. And as he was talking, like, yes, you know, it's Alabama and maybe Alabama would beat TCU or maybe they would beat Ohio State or maybe they would even beat Michigan if you talk about it that way, or he's mentioning the Vegas point spreads, that needs to be a factor of 
who would be favored in that game. And it's just to your point, four best and foremost deserving. But in Alabama's case, they were a two-loss team this year. And Alabama's argument was really, we're Alabama, we should be in. Vegas might like us better. And by the way, our best data point is a loss. And it's not just one loss, it's two losses, both at the last second of the game, but still a loss. And then we've not had a a two-loss team in the playoff yet when we've had two-loss conference champions in the discussion. So I wasn't convinced the committee would put a non-champion two-loss team in the mix this year, which lacked those quality wins. So I agree that the committee did get it right. And then TCU's case, like you said, they impressively won 12 straight. They kept finding a way to win. No matter what happened, they would get down and almost make it like a challenge for them to come back and say, all right, how many points can we come back from this week? And then they beat Kansas State in the regular season, coming back from 18 down. So even though they lost to Kansas State in overtime by three, I was not convinced that a TCU loss would drop them out of the four. And certainly we see that the committee held them at three, and maybe that's because USC took the floor out from underneath them and lost. But if there was a path for Ohio State and Alabama, it was clear to the committee on Sunday that it needed to be USC to lose to open the door, not just TCU losing on Sunday. So TCU at three is good with me. We're going to now get a new face in the national championship, regardless of if it's Michigan or TCU who wins the Fiesta Bowl. And then Georgia and Ohio State, that's going to be an incredible matchup. What are your early thoughts, though, on Michigan and TCU as a matchup? Yeah, the head says that Michigan's going to roll them, right? They seem to be the more complete and talented team on both sides of the ball. TCU's had a couple of late-game comebacks that skewed their way and that in a normal year might not. Um, And while they do have some impressive wins, they've also lost. They lost to Kansas State. Michigan beat Purdue, who is worse than Kansas State, but still Michigan 13-0. And, uh, you know, I think that the the stats would argue the same, that Michigan's probably going to win this game pretty handily. But TCU's had that magic all year, and you, you you can't discount that. You know, the fact that they were able to come back in those games, maybe it might not be blind luck. Maybe they really are just a good football team who's able to win at the end. And if they can keep it close, maybe they can do it again. So, you know, I, I like Michigan in this one. If I have to pick, I'll pick Michigan. But at the same time, I, I think it's unfair to discount TCU because they really have had a lot of success this year. Max Duggan has been tremendous for TCU and his heart, his will to win it. You can feel it ooze out into the team and they respond to his nature he had 95 rushing yards. I think it was on that final drive where he just laid in the end zone can barely get up. Like it was a great moment of the season. TCU was a great story the whole year and matching up against Michigan. You're right. When you're looking at the matchup, just on paper, it screams, oh, Michigan's going to roll them. TCU is from the Big 12. They're not tough. And all Michigan does is out-physical you and out-man you and kind of play like an anaconda where they just squeeze the life out of you and finally take over in the second half and fourth quarter. So if I look at this game at face value, Blake Quorum is out, but Michigan has another capable running back in Donovan Edwards. Maybe his hand is healed by then and he'll be able to be a threat out of the backfield receiving the ball. But early indications on this game is that Michigan can win pretty handily. But they shouldn't take TCU lightly because both teams are second-half teams, so it's really going to be interesting to see how the adjustment chess match goes when both teams' strengths are in the second half. It feels like we're going to see two separate football games wrapped up inside of one in the desert. Yeah, that's actually an interesting point that you made. Both teams really are second-half teams, and we've seen that all year. Um, Will be interesting to see the chess match between Jim Harbaugh, Sonny Dykes, and their staffs, but... 
Um, you know, I think for me, the quarterback battle is so intriguing. You mentioned Duggan, who's been so good all year, Heisman finalist. Then you got on the other side, J.J. McCarthy, a guy known more for his legs, but he's won some big games. He's played well in those big games. He's really a dual-threat guy who can keep a defense off balance. Uh, we saw Max Duggan's running ability, especially at the end of that game against Kansas State, prove fruitful for them, where he basically took him down the field with his legs on that last drive and collapsed in the end zone after scoring. So you can't discount him there either. But J.J. McCarthy, five-star player, really talented against the seasoned veteran in Duggan, who has led his team from the depths of the Big 12 back to the top. So it'll be interesting to watch for sure. Definitely. And then if we move into the Peach Bowl, Georgia and Ohio State, this is a really, really big matchup for both teams. Georgia's the, the defending national champions, and they kind of got a tough draw. If you're looking at the teams that you would not want to play if you're Georgia, like Michigan matches up stylistically with Georgia. So they, I don't think they would be opposed to that matchup. And, and then TCU is the easiest matchup if you look at how the teams are built and how they recruit and how they play, staff, player personnel. And then Ohio State, that's the toughest matchup I think Georgia could have gotten. So in a way, they're the number one seed and they got rewarded with a really tall task. And I think it puts the pressure on them in this matchup, honestly. It might give Ohio State a psychological advantage in the matchup. As you dissect this game early on here, how do you see Georgia and Ohio State playing out? I actually like this matchup for Ohio State. Um, it's still probably the worst matchup they could get, which is deserved since they're the four seed. But you know, I really think they can win this game, and I think they're going to be motivated. They're very talented in their own right, as is Georgia. And, you know, I'm interested to see how the Bulldogs come out. If they come out and they start hot, you know, Ohio State's probably not winning the game. But they let the Buckeyes hang around. Ohio State themselves has been a second-half team this year, with the exception of the Michigan game. And, you know, if you give Ohio State time to settle in and get their bearings, and, you know, this is obviously a team with not a ton of playoff experience. They had that one game in 2020, but a lot of the veteran players from that team have moved on. They obviously had that one game in 2019, but I don't even know if they still have a single starter from that game still on the roster. And, you know, it's interesting to think about Ohio State in, in the right that they've won some close games this year. They are battle tested. People say they're not, but they are. Um, obviously, that Michigan loss is going to be hanging over their head until they play them again, whether that ends up being, you know, in the second week of January or whether that's once again, the last Saturday in November will be interesting to see when that happens. But for Ohio State, you know, if they can settle into this game, they got to feel good about themselves. They got to just stem the tide, hold them early, get their feet wet and go from there. Yeah, the game is played in Atlanta. This is Georgia's third game in Atlanta this season and Atlanta's in Georgia. So it's a de facto home game for the Bulldogs and Kirby Smart's team. Georgia's an ultra-physical team. They're going to hit you in the mouth. For Ohio State to respond early in that game, they don't need to go down the field and score a touchdown right away. That's not the most important thing. The most important thing for Ohio State is to hit Georgia back in the mouth and be physical and, and show them that they're not soft. Georgia's going to hear for the next three and a half weeks, Ohio State's soft. Michigan bullied them. You're going to have your way with them and do whatever you want. They're not an SEC team. They're not built for this. And Ohio State's going to hear all that same chatter. And they need to channel it and then match up man-to-man, mano-a-mano with Georgia and hit them back in the mouth. Yes, they need to score early. But the most important thing for Ohio State is showing that they are a physical team because this is a program game for Ohio State now. Oregon last year, Michigan last year, Michigan this year. Those three games, they got outmanned and out-toughed. They cannot do that again 
on the big stage in the college football playoff now for the fourth time in two years under Ryan Day. That's going to question a lot about the program. It's going to question a lot about the manhood of these players and the state of the program. So I think that feeds into that psychological advantage that we were talking about for Ohio State, where they have to respond to that narrative and they have to undo it. And what better way to do it than against Georgia, who has been the best team in the last two years, and they've been the most physical team we've seen in college football in recent memory. So I'm really interested to see Ohio State's response and their attitude and their mindset in this game because Travion Henderson, Mayan Williams, Dallin Hayden, whoever carries the ball for Ohio State, they're going to take a big shot. A wide receiver over the middle, whether it's a Mecca Ibuka, he might take a shot. How do they respond on defense? Tommy Eichenberg, does he lay the wood to Lad McConkey? We'll see. Those are the matchups, the little things Ohio State's going to have to do really well early on in this game to show Georgia that they're here to play. Yeah, you've heard former Ohio State players talk about how the practice facility is almost like a country club now, right? Uh, it's getting soft in there. Ryan Day doesn't have the fire under his guys that Urban had. And obviously, we're not in the facility. We don't know how true that is or untrue it is. But, you know, the fact that they're even coming out and saying it or that they have to say it and the fact that Ohio State's letting them say it with their play on the field, um, that means something. And, you know, you, like you said, they're going to have to come out and prove to everybody, everybody in the country that will be watching, the millions of people that will be watching across the world, that they are physical. They are a tough team. They know what it takes to win these tough physical games. And they're going to go ahead and, like you said, hit them back in the mouth. So you're right. It's absolutely a statement for Ohio State and a statement for Ryan Day that people thought he was going to make against Michigan, and he didn't. And now it's put up or shut up. There is no more room for air here. No, and it's very rare that you get an opportunity for redemption this quick. Brian Day and Ohio State almost had to deal with this narrative for a second offseason in a row, which would have been ridiculous pressure and heat coming from Buckeye Nation and really the national media as well. But you have now a second chance at redemption to get it right. You cannot pass up this opportunity. Ryan Day said it's like a new lease on life. There's a new energy in that program. Okay, well, they have to back that up with physical, physical play in the Peach Bowl against Georgia. And like we said, that is the perfect stage to do it if they can get through Georgia and just outman them. But I want to look at it this way. Which team of the four is there more pressure on? Like, Which team is feeling the most pressure in this playoff? I think it's one of the teams in the Peach Bowl, but I'll see your thoughts. Yeah, I, I don't think it's Georgia. Well, here's how I'll look at it, right? If I'm a Georgia fan, they won the championship last year. I'm good. I'm satisfied. They ran the table this regular season, won the SEC again. If they were to somehow lose, their program still is number one recruiting class. They're going to go get some transfers that'll plug in some holes. They'll be fine regardless. Michigan, kind of similar. I'll be in a different conference. They made the playoffs twice in a row. They've got a young quarterback who will be back next year. It seems like Jim Harbaugh's finally figured it out and Barring that he doesn't go to the Indianapolis Colts, it seems that uh, they're pretty stable right now. TCU, I think, I'm just happy to be here. You know, I don't think anybody thought that Sonny Dykes uh, would have done what he's done in his first year in the program. And, you know, I think they've had a really impressive season. And, and I hope that their fans are, you know, just happy to be there because I don't see them lasting very long, but impressive nonetheless. And that leads you to Ohio State, who might have the most pressure. Like you, we've just talked about, Ryan Day. Um, you know, he he has been labeled charm and soft, and now it's his time to change that. So, you know, you can make an argument really for any of the four teams, but I think Ohio State right now 
with the combination of instability and their lack of success in big games over the last couple of years and the labels that are being thrown around, um, they got to at least keep it close. They got to at least keep it close and show everybody like, hey, it wasn't a mistake to put us in. We gave Georgia a good game. And that's at the very least. Yeah, Dave, this is really interesting to me. Georgia last year, you said they won the national championship. They're like, I'm good if even if they lose. What Georgia did not accomplish last year was winning the SEC. So if you look at the checklist of items, and I'm going to tie in Michigan to this as well, because Michigan won the Big Ten last year, but then they got rolled by Georgia. But in Georgia's case, they checked off the last box of what this team wanted to do is to win the SEC. They got that. So now do they feel like, all right, that's satisfied. Now we've done everything. And now they walk out with puffy chests and like, all right, come take something from us. But they're not as physical or, or they don't take Ohio State as seriously because now they think they're the new kids on the block, Alabama who. So just that mindset advantage will be interesting to see if Georgia leverages that. Kirby Smart, fantastic motivator. He's going to have his team ready to go. But the attitude of Georgia will be really intriguing because winning the SEC was that last checkbox that they had to get through, and they did it. So now are they serious? You know they want to win the national championship, but how serious are they? in that matchup. And then Ohio state obviously is going to feel the pressure too, but I think Georgia has more pressure than Ohio state. I'm going to make that argument because Ohio state's getting that chance at redemption, but Ohio state's going to be loose in this matchup. If they come out tight, they're in for a world of hurting. And I don't see that happening. Brian day has nothing to lose in this game. Now the season's already written off. He gets a second chance. I think the offense is going to be free flying like it was against Clemson in 2020. They have nothing to lose. They're going to put it all out on the field and they have the players to execute And if you look at the style of offenses Georgia struggles with in the last two years, it's that high flying, throw the football around the field, spread you out wide and see if Georgia can cover the entire field. LSU threw for 500 yards last week. I know they were playing from behind, but they exploited a few things. Keely Ringo, does Ryan Day attack him early with Marvin Harrison Jr.? Really, really interesting to see all the layers of this matchup. It's going to be a lot of fun to watch to close out 2022. Well, it's absolutely going to be a lot of fun, and you're just glad Ohio State's in it for the ratings and whatnot, and the fact that it's going to be Georgia and Ohio State, who haven't played uh, certainly before my lifetime, um, but not recently at all, and instead of a Georgia-Bama matchup, which we see almost every year. So I think uh, nationally, I think it'll be a lot of intriguing storylines leading up to the game and during and after the game itself, and you know, likewise in Michigan and TCU, it seems like that one's not getting a ton of love nationally. People are more focused on Ohio State, Georgia, but that should be a good game in its own right. You hope that TCU can keep it close and, you know, see what both coaches have up their sleeves. So really exciting playoff. And I think we uh, kind of got lucky with the draw here as college football fans that it worked out the way it did. Yeah, we wanted to see Ohio State, Georgia last year just because the top offense in the country versus the top defense. Well, Ohio State proved they weren't as good last year, and now we get the matchup this year. And you could argue this year's matchup would be way better than it would have been last year, as as we've seen. So Ohio State-Georgia is going to be so much fun. And like you said, Michigan-TCU as well. New blood we're going to get in the national championship this year. And Jim Harbaugh, a big opportunity ahead of him. But all this was made possible by Kyle Whittingham and the Utah Utes. Was there a surprise to you last weekend with the conference championships and how they played out real quick? Oh, my goodness. I mean, that that USC game, it reminded me a lot of the Ohio State-Michigan game. And it might have been even worse for USC. Yeah, you know, That game was really close at the half, just like Ohio State-Michigan. And Utah just bullied them in the second half. I mean, that was a beating, an absolute beating. And for Ohio State, at least you can take 
a little bit of solace in the fact that, hey, Michigan's probably better than Utah. You know, you get the Lincoln rally. It's his first year. But you already lost to him earlier in the year, right? You just need to beat him this time. And it's hard to beat the same team twice, as we saw with TCU losing to Kansas State after beating him earlier in the year. It's hard to beat the same team twice. And USC just fell flat on their face in the second half. Caleb Williams couldn't move. He was so beat up. I mean, that was just an absolute bloodbath for the final 30 minutes of that game. And, and it was really almost unbelievable to watch. I mean, Utah, just the energy was just so different when you looked at the Utah sideline and the USC sideline. And to give Kyle Whittingham credit, he's done it before and he did it again. He gave Ohio State a great game last year, beat USC earlier this season. He's had a, not, a bunch of really good wins since he started there. And, you know, just give credit to his team, man. That was a beating in the second half. Utah last year, this is the second year in a row they beat a team twice to win the Pac-12. They beat Oregon twice in three weeks last year, and now they beat USC twice this year. And when you beat a team twice, normally the first time is a blowout and the second time is a lot closer if you do it again. Utah did the complete opposite. Their physicality kept going to a level that USC was not willing to take it. And they stayed true to their identity. They got down 17-3 to and did not flinch. They held USC on that fourth down, got the ball back, and scored. Got it back to one possession. And then from there on out, they just kept taking a higher and higher and more intense and more intense. And USC was not ready to go to that level. And Utah just put a beating on them. It really was incredible to watch. It was one thing after another. You just kept going, oh, my gosh, Utah's going to do this. And they ran away with the game at the end there. So Cameron Rising, what a player he was. He took an absolute shot, a football hit uh, in the, I think it was the late third quarter, early fourth quarter there. Mm -hmm. I mean, showed his toughness there. And they've got a, a good matchup against Penn State in the Rose Bowl. So really curious to see how Kyle Whittingham and Cameron Rising, if they can actually get that Rose Bowl victory this year, that'll be a good matchup against Penn State, um, you know, just position-wise and style-wise. James Franklin and Kyle Whittingham, we'll see what they can do. Penn State not been to the Rose Bowl since 2016 when they had a classic against USC. I think you'd, you can expect a similar matchup, maybe not with the without all the fireworks, but a similar back-and-forth game. Yeah, I think that game is going to be really physical. Both of those teams have kind of built their programs on, you know, we're going to be tough. We're going to hit you for 60 minutes. So that'll be an interesting one. James Franklin historically hasn't been great in big games. Um, so we'll see how that matchup goes. If Penn State can kind of buck the trend a little bit. Um, but, you know, I also want to give a little bit of a quick shout out here before we move on to Tulane. Um, I've been dogging them all year. Good for them winning the AAC. I think Tulane might beat USC in the Cotton Bowl, honestly. Mm -hmm. USC will be dealing with some opt-outs. Caleb William, I believe, has to play because of his eligibility uh, if he's healthy enough. But don't be surprised if Tulane uh, leaves Dallas with a victory. But uh, one last thing, I mean, looking at all these conference championship games, Cade Klubnik and Clemson, Dabo Sweeney finally makes the switch. If he did it a week earlier, there is a very high possibility we're talking about Clemson as the number four seed in the playoff this year instead of Ohio State. I think Sweeney kind of had to swallow his pride there at the end, knowing that the move needed to be made off of DJU. But that's going to live as a what if, you know, Clemson moved to him earlier and maybe they don't lose those two games against Notre Dame and South Carolina or they just lose one of them and they find their way in. But uh, Clemson looked completely different on Saturday. Yeah, they did. And I think part of that is just that North Carolina isn't very good, right? Right. I mean, you know, the they whole defensive backfield is already under the transfer portal. Um, Matt Brown is getting up there in age and 
you know, they have a great quarterback, Drake May, who announced just this evening, actually, that he's going to be sticking around in Chapel Hill. But, you know, Clemson, clearly the better roster. And North Carolina was kind of one of the frauds this year. You know, I hate to label them as that, but they just were. They, you know, did probably didn't really have any business being in that game. Clemson, clearly the best team in the conference. And, um, you know, it just is what it is. But I agree that move had to be made. And Cade Klubnick really ran that offense a whole lot better than DJU did. And there's a reason why. EJU's now in the transfer portal and we'll see where he ends up. But, you know, Dabo had to make the move. He was kind of jerking it around all year in terms of, you know, bringing Cade Klubnick in and different situations. And will he make the permanent switch? Will he not? Ultimately he does here and it pays off and he wins the ACC again, but next year's a big year for them because they've kind of been trending down the last couple of years. People are question whether this is the end of Clemson and Brent Venables leaving, you know, what does that mean? You know, Dabo never has anybody leave. He never gets decommits and a couple players decommitted from his recruiting classes recently. And so the next year will be a big year for them. We'll see how they do. I think they'll rebound. I think club Nick will do a good job leading that offense, but big year for Dabo up ahead in 2023. Speaking of the transfer portal and just an overhaul of a roster and got to take advantage of the situation, Colorado, they hired Deion Sanders. That's going to be a splash hire for the Buffaloes. They're going to come back and be uh, a contender, I think, right away in the Pac-12 uh, once he fills in those pieces. He says he's bringing some guys over from Jackson State. Uh, his son, I believe, is coming over. Travis Hunter might enter the portal and follow him. But a lot of recruits are going to reach up to Colorado. He's going to make an immediate impact. But as you look at it, what do you think the impact of that Deion Sanders hire will be in Colorado? Oh, I love it. I think it's the perfect spot for him. You know, yeah. you, you don't necessarily want to jump all in at Florida State or Auburn or wherever else he was linked to. But right. Colorado, a place that has been really bad the last couple of years. Beautiful campus, beautiful school, good academic school. That's a plus. Always. And all the control. He's in a weak conference. And he can just go get whoever he wants, right? I mean, if Deion Sanders called me right now and said, hey, David, I want you to come start at left tackle you know let's say i play left tackle let's say i want you to start a left tackle and i'm in the transfer portal i'm the best tackle in the transfer portal i say why not you know why not he'll build a roster that can win you'll get to play in some cool places against the power five teams you'll probably at least make a bowl game you'll get great exposure for the nfl who knows how many nfl contacts he has and there's a good chance that you're going to end up pretty successful if you go play for Deion sanders he just won't ran the table at Jackson state built them into a perennial conference championship in two years. And now he gets to go to Colorado and try and do the same thing against Lincoln Riley and Dan Lanning and Kalen DeBoer and the rest of the coaches down there in the PAC 12. And, you know, I think, like I said, this is just a perfect spot for Dion. I'll be rooting for him. I think it's going to be really exciting to watch. And especially with how the transfer portal has been in, you know, even the last week and how it's trending, he can pull some really good pieces really fast and make them a competitor very quickly. Nebraska hired Matt Rule, so September 9th, Nebraska and Colorado play. What a matchup that's going to be. If you're looking at the schedule uh, ahead from earlier this year to, to that game next year, you're like, all right, who cares? Now, Matt Rule and Deion Sanders restoring a rivalry. Hello, sign me up. Mm -hmm. I'm sure we'll have big noon kickoff there. Uh, that'll be all over TV. Just to bring that back at the forefront, Colorado and Nebraska have been down for uh, many years now, and that'll be able to take center stage. And I second everything you said with Deion Sanders. He's going to be great there. He's going to bring guys in in the transfer portal. 
And he really has to wear his gold jacket to the recruiting pitch. That's it. I mean, his name, it speaks for itself, his reputation, his football prowess, his IQ, everything is going to attract guys and talent uh, to Colorado. And I think they will be in contention for the Pac-12 potentially. Maybe, maybe not next year, but the following year after USC, UCLA going to come to the big 10 and 24. Deion Sanders is going to make noise out there. So I'm, I'm really excited for that hire. I think it's great for the sport. It's great to have Colorado back. And a quick note, too, you said a good academic school. I believe last week it was. They made a change. I think the chancellors all agreed that Colorado can now accept the general studies degree. They have that path now so they can accept more transfers and more recruits, and that'll just open up their base. It doesn't diminish their academic prowess by any stretch or their prestige, but it just opens the door to bring more guys in in that transfer uh, setting. Yeah, like I said, I think he's going to have all the control he wants and he'll be able to make the changes that he wants and get the players that he wants. He already hired Sean Lewis from Kent State as his offensive coordinator. And anytime somebody drops down from a a head coach position to a coordinator position by their own accord, you know, that's a big deal. And, you know, with his offense playing in Boulder, high elevation, he's going to go up tempo all the time. Um, this is going to be a pretty, pretty brutal winter of conditioning for these Colorado players, but it'll pay off in the end when they're, you know, running up and down the field, scoring a lot of points. So it'll be fun to watch. I'm looking forward to it. Definitely. And I want to transition now into the Heisman trophy. So Caleb Williams, CJ Stroud, Max Duggan, and Stetson Bennett were the four, uh, invited to New York, uh, this weekend. And I'm looking at this list. How in the world is Blake Corum not on there? I think that might be one of the bigger snubs that we've had in recent Heisman Trophy memory. And then Hendon Hooker, I believe, also should have been invited. I know he tore his ACL against South Carolina and he got hurt, but for 80% of the season, Hendon Hooker was dazzling everyone. He has a stats to prove it. SEC Player of the Year, he should have been invited over Stetson Bennett. And when you look at the Heisman Trophy now, I think if you're of the four invited, if you want the razzle-dazzle and that's what you value, Caleb Williams wins it. If you value consistency, C.J. Shroud wins it. If you value heart and grit and the underdog story, you give it to Max Duggan. And then if you simply just do popularity contest, best player, or not best player, but player on the best team, it's Stetson Bennett. Your thoughts? Yeah, I agree about Blake Corum. Unfortunately, it's a quarterback's award now, right? That's what it seems to be. Uh, obviously, we had Devontae Smith, but that seems to be the exception and not the rule here as of late. And, um, you know, you just think about it from that perspective, and that's probably why Blake Quorum isn't there. I agree he should be. In terms of the guys who will be there, I think Caleb Williams ultimately wins the award. I think he just wins via recency bias, right? They've been talking about him last, so he'll probably win the award. Uh, but I agree with everything you said. C.J. Stroud's been very consistent. Max Duggan's won. Um, and and carried his team while doing so. And Stetson Bennett, coming off a national championship, hasn't lost in a very long time. So uh, best player on the best team, like you said. So arguments certainly to be made for all of them. I think Caleb Williams ends up taking it home. Yeah, there's even more I'd want to fix with the Heisman Trophy. I think it's been so diluted in the last couple of years, especially because you can submit your votes before all the games have been played, and not including the postseason games, like the bowl games and the playoff. I mean, before the conference championship game, you can submit your vote. So that is problematic to me because we don't wait until all the games are finished anyway, at least wait until the conference championship games are decided and then cast your vote. So that's a a knock on the voters. So I don't know. I'm really disappointed in what the Heisman is becoming now because that it's a prestigious award. It has the fraternity 
that trust. So I, I really am disappointed what the Heisman's been, especially that Blake Corum is not invited. Michigan does not do what Michigan does this year without Corum on that offense. Donovan Edwards is tremendous, but Blake Corum is a whole nother level, and he is the reason and the heartbeat of that Michigan football team. Yeah, the Heisman does matter, and it used to matter a lot more, right? I mean, Reggie right. Bush has been campaigning for 20 years to get his back, right? Like He should means, get it back, too. He should, and it means something to these guys. And, you know, it is a shame that just like the whole sport, it seems, is becoming more commercialized and made for TV. And, you know, who's going to get us the biggest ratings? And who's going to do this? And who's going to, you know, have the most social media followers so when they post their picture with the trophy, they'll get the most exposure? And who's going to do this for NIL? And, you know, this and that and the other. And, you know, I think a lot of things do need to be changed. I'd be curious to see how many voters are voting before the conference championship games. Um, Cause you're right. That matters for sure. I think things certainly would have changed after last weekend. Um, and we'll see how it goes from here. Everything has its ebbs and flows and, you know, we'll see how this trophy ends up, especially as we go into the 12 team playoff, if they'll change the voting or anything like that. So uh, just like the rest of college football right now, a lot of questions in the coming years. Yeah, I think it ultimately comes down to Caleb Williams and C.J. Stroud, and most likely recency bias will give the award to Caleb Williams by default. But there's a taint or a scar or a blemish on everyone's resume that's invited to New York. C.J. Stroud won two big games this year. He beat Notre Dame, and he beat Penn State on the road. That speaks a lot. He didn't win the biggest game against Michigan. So that's obviously his downside. And then Caleb Williams lost to the same team twice. And, I mean – they got beat bad the second time, and he was a non-factor. I know he was hobbled, and it's not 100% Caleb Williams, but still, you've got to find a way to win that game. You can't lose the same team twice. So curious of how that goes. The Heisman has been diminished over the last couple of years. Like We used to all sit down and watch it like it was a great thing because it was a great award. That was something – you watched it just like a football game. All right, the Heisman ceremony starts at 8 o'clock on the Saturday after conference championships. We're sitting down and watching it. I remember watching Tim Tebow raise that trophy, Troy Smith, raise a trophy. I remember where I was when Johnny Menzel became the first freshman to win the award, you know, all those kinds of things. And now you're like, all right, who cares who wins the Heisman trophy? It's, it doesn't carry that same weight, which is disappointing. Like no, you said, doesn't. they're commercializing the sport. It doesn't. And uh, you know, we got army Navy and the Heisman and that's pretty much all we get to the playoffs. Right. So right. it used to really mean something when they would have it sandwiched in between the bowl games and, or the, the regular season of the bowl games. And, you know, now it's just like, okay, the Heisman Trophy's on. Maybe I'll flip it on for a few minutes here and see what's going on. But, you know, I, I think most fans across the country aren't going to tune in, especially if their guy's not in it. And, you know, it's a shame because that's not how it used to be. But, you know, you move on and, and the winner will still deserve it and it's still a great award, but it certainly doesn't have the luster it used to. Yeah, you might start at 8 o'clock. You might turn it on at 8.58 to see whose name is called. You're not watching it for the full hour like you used to to get all the talk and the previous winners and their stories and just learn about the Heisman Trophy as you do it. But, yeah, you said we get Army-Navy this week along with the Heisman Trophy. I'm extremely excited. I'll be there in person this week. It's uh, one of those college football bucket list games as, as a fan that you want to go to, so I'm extremely excited uh, to be in attendance there. I'll be with my friend Matt. So it'll be, it'll be a good time, a great experience, great patriotism and football colliding worlds. I'm really excited. I've been looking forward to this for, for the whole season. Oh, Army-Navy is awesome. It is, it is the best game because it doesn't matter what the team's records are, you know, who they have lining up. They, every single player on the field, all 22 of them, are going to give 100% on every single play from the opening kickoff until the kneel down. They are going to give 100%. 
And it's just fun to watch because they have all the spectacles leading up to it. You get the CBS crew, um, you know, all that whole broadcast. And it's just fun to watch. So jealous that you're going to be there, but I'll be watching, you know, on TV and, and looking forward to it. what is always a great game. Yeah, we talked off air about maybe it snows or something like that it gets a little cooler into the 30s just to add more intrigue into the setting of the game because Army, Navy and the snow, all they do is run the football anyway. You get a few passes sprinkled in there. But I mean, it would be really cool if it was going to snow, but it's supposed to be 45 and sunny. So selfishly, I won't freeze as much. So that'll be nice. But wouldn't have been mad at any snow showers just to add to that setting. So uh, let's pick the game here, if you don't mind. So we got Army, Navy. Navy's favored by two and a half. I want you to take who you think is going to win the game, but also the over-under is 32 and a half. Let's pick the point total, too, just for fun. Okay, I think it's going to go over 32 and a half, but barely. It'll be like 20 to 16 or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so barely over. I, I haven't watched a lot of Army or Navy this year, unfortunately, because they're fun to watch. They Usually are. one of them plays Ohio State or one of these other big teams every year. You can tune in for mm-hmm. a little bit. Uh, yeah. But that wasn't the case this year. I didn't get to catch any of their games. Uh, I'm going to take Navy only because I have a buddy in the Navy, a couple buddies in the Navy, and uh, hopefully they'll get you know a few hours of satisfaction after beating Army. So I'll take Navy for that reason and that reason only, but good luck to both teams, and thank you. Yeah, I, I'm with you. I have um, I have a couple of them in the Army and previ- ones that previously served, and then as well uh, in the Navy, my first editor I ever dealt with, Charlie, He he's a veteran. He was in the Navy, and then uh, Alyssa's grandfather was also in the Navy. He served. So obviously, thank you to every every single person in our military who served in all our armed forces to protect our freedoms and everything. But on the backs of, of Charlie and G pop, I'm going to take Navy in this ball game to cover. And I like this game to go over the 32 and a half. It's going to hit 34. I think I'll go 20 to 14 Navy. Uh, a lot of fun. We're going to sit uh, close to the tunnel to see both teams run out cool uniform combinations coming as well. Army Navy, everything is just done right in this game. And there's so much, it's so fitting. It has its own day and its own slot. CBS is there, three thirty kick. Sun's going to go down for the second half. So I'm, I'm really, really looking forward to it. No, it's just perfect college football. It really is, and it's and it is great to have it on its own day, where that's the only thing you can watch. And you know, the whole country will tune in for a little bit, watch that game, and you know, see what happens. Just a good old fashioned football game. There, it feels like you're transported back in time a little bit. It really does. Last time it'll be uh, here in Philadelphia until 2027. So couldn't be a better setting. It's going to be a great time. Uh, really, really looking forward to it. But uh, yeah, we got a couple of the bowl games. I start on December 16th. Next week's show, we'll bring you some more picks. But uh, Dave, that's all I got right now. Looking forward to the weekend. Yeah, looking forward to the weekend. Uh, it's been a really good regular season of college football. And I remember saying on the first broadcast that we got the whole season ahead, right? And yep. Now it's getting down to the wire. We got a couple of we got Army Navy. We got a couple of weeks, and then we got the the final, you know, three games after the Big Bowl season. So, you know, we'll see how it goes. And uh, looking forward to a lot more storylines here in the coming weeks. Obviously, a lot of movement coming uh, in the transfer portal, and uh, as the twenty twenty three recruiting class comes to a close. Um, so definitely a lot of storylines some more coaching changes surely on the horizon here um, and it'll be fun so a couple of weeks ahead yeah I imagine we'll be pretty heavy on the transfer portal and Deion Sanders related news for the next two weeks as we get as we start the bowl games and before we get to the New Year's Six and the bigger bowl games and stuff so I'm sure our show will be pretty heavy on that next week and the week after but 
a lot to look forward to. It's amazing. We're already here in December that the season's gone that quickly. It, it was a fun season and we still have a lot more ahead. So much uh, to finish to the story and to the season, but it's amazing really how quickly it went. Yeah. And we'll save the recap for the final season episode before we get into our off season content, but it really has been a good season, a lot of storylines. So I uh, really thank you guys for listening and sticking with us this whole year. And there's a lot more to come. Yeah, guys, thank you for listening. And again, we just want to say thank you to everyone in our armed forces who serve in our military to protect us and to protect our freedoms. We cannot thank you enough for your service. Uh, we love and appreciate each one of you guys. And thank you all for listening. This has been the Saturday Cadence Podcast. 